Hello and welcome to this Investment Lessons from the Russia-Ukraine Conflict podcast sponsored by PSG Wealth. Now, concerns about shortages arising from supply chain disruptions have already inflated the price of strategic products, which will have an adverse bearing on consumers and businesses worldwide owing to the ongoing conflict that's happening in Europe and Russia right now. And in this discussion powered by PSG Wealth, our guest is going to be reflecting on the impact of that conflict between Russia and Ukraine on financial market and particularly the world of investments. I'm Rio Gavaza, business writer with the Business Day and Financial Mail, and I'll be your host for this conversation. Joining me is uh, Adrian Pask, who is the Chief Investment Officer over at PSG Wealth, and he's going to be highlighting how this conflict impacts their outlook on inflation and interest rates and uh, what it actually means for investors with the you are on the retail side institutional side there are a lot of factors that need to be considered with everything that's going on right now so adrian greetings to you once again hi madiwa thank you very much for having me on the podcast pleasure to be back Certainly, a lot has been going on. I think in our last discussion, a lot had been said about where some of these things could potentially go. And now we're no longer talking about something that's potential. This is now a reality. And even before that, one of the big things that had been highlighted is the fact that inflation was a big risk that people were talking about going into this year. And we had already seen that central banks have already started their interest rate hiking cycle due to those high inflation levels. And lately, we've seen how the conflict between Russia and Ukraine has actually further fueled those inflation levels, particularly around energy products. So how does that geopolitical tension change your outlook for inflation, interest rates, as well as economic growth? So in terms of inflation, it's a very complicated debate, actually. There's very intricate demand and supply side dynamics at play. So from a demand side, obviously, we're looking at a inflation push in the form of better consumer spending as we recover out of COVID, which is largely obviously positive. Everybody's doing a little bit better. Demand is up and prices go up. The more positive thing from that perspective is it's reasonably easy to start managing inflation if it's largely driven by demand. So obviously if consumers are doing well and they're spending and they're driving up prices, it's quite easy to increase interest rates and try and dampen demand that way in an effort to decelerate inflation. The more complicated side of this is on the supply side where prices are more driven by what's happening by the supply of product uh, rather than the demand thereof. And again, if we, for example, think back to the COVID situation, supply chain issues in the new car segment with the chip makers, for example, that largely then led to more inflation in the used car segment because all that demand reflected into that environment. But that's really a supply side issue. And the same thing has obviously happened now with oil in particular with war tensions around. So bottlenecks in the energy sector, Russia is a a top three oil producer globally. It produces 100 million barrels of oil a day. And where we had oil prices at around $70 per barrel in December last year, it feels like a long time ago, because just the other week we saw oil prices touching $130 a barrel. So, you know, an escalation in prices on oil affects everybody. I think to many, it feels like a, 
a distant commodity that you hardly ever lay your eyes on. But the reality is those things affect our petrol prices, the input costs, our products, etc. So it will eventually filter through into broader consumer prices, which is a concern. The other aspect of inflation, specifically as it relates to Russia and Ukraine tensions, which is a, a real concern, is the wheat export. So roughly 30% of global wheat is exported through Ukraine and Russia. So obviously, if there's tensions there, then we see significant supply side issues featuring into the input cost of many of the foodstuffs that we enjoy. So those are really from an inflation perspective. On an interest rate level, though, all that being said is interest rates just very simply have to move higher. So you can understand the sensitivity around prices, and I don't think monetary policy is going to help much to fix the supply issues. It can it can damp the demand, but that's not really the issue. We, we need to solve the supply side stuff. But if you look at, at interest rates, it needs to move higher. You'll recall last time we had our chat, we said policymakers are heavily exposed at the moment because if there's another crisis that comes our way, what are they going to do? Because if you look at the fiscal support that was lent through vouchers and credits and grants and other things, most governments are extended and interest rates through monetary policy is very low. So there's very little in the form of tools available to stimulate the economy. So it's more of a readiness type of strategy. You need to normalize rates, move them higher so that you're ready for the next event that comes. And that's why, and almost regardless of where the inflation side sits, interest rates will have to move higher. And we've seen that. So if you look at what the Fed's done, there was briefly a debate around maybe 50 basis points, and then the war came. And they decided more prudently to just focus on 25. But nonetheless, rates are going up. So I think that's a fairly given policy action in our view. Globally, we'll see interest rates move higher in spite of the war. The key question is really the impact on economic growth. So we've already seen the U.S. yield curve invert which is normally a signal for a recession on the horizon. So again, something to keep in mind. And supply chains that have been disrupted is obviously a headwind for economic growth. As soon as you start to add friction in the system with goods and, and services can't move freely, inflation is but one component of the symptoms that you'll see. Obviously, you'll also see less growth in certain areas because there's key dependencies. And those who need product aren't getting product. And that obviously constrains economic growth as well. And then maybe on the last point on that, sentiment is a very big thing, investments in particular, but also from a, from economics perspective, because if, if consumers, whether they be retail consumers or, or production or manufacturers, if sentiment is poor and there's a lot of uncertainty around, then capital tends to stand still. And that's obviously, again, a headwind for economic growth. So quite a few things to keep in mind. But I think the key thing there is interest rates are moving higher. That's really one of our key themes for the year and how we think about those things in terms of positioning portfolios. I think every time I speak to you, we always talk about this universe of factors that investors have to think about. And everything that you've just highlighted speaks to that universe of factors, policy, interest rates, monetary policy. Just now you were talking about sentiment. There is so much that investors have to grapple with when they're making these decisions. And one can only imagine that for someone such as yourself, how you guys are structuring your products and also the way that you're advising your clients 
sense. So maybe you could talk to us just around how you position your products to actually protect investors from all the risks that you've just uh, highlighted, all the different headwinds that you've just highlighted for us here. Yeah, so obviously a war period is a big humanitarian crisis, really. So obviously you don't want to see him as you're overly opportunistic in that environment. But that's also largely the job of investment managers to, you know, really do two things is look for opportunities, but at the same time manage risks. So if we look at inflation beneficiaries, so if we say we, we think the inflation environment is set to last for a while, and typically what you do find through research, the guys that benefit most from a high inflation environment are your, your energy and material counters. So those have, have already done well because in this specific environment, an inflationary environment was dovetailed by a war period, coincidentally by one of the biggest oil producers. So obviously we've seen oil counters do well globally. So that's one area where you can find some benefit. In terms of interest rate risk, which is the key one, what we've done is really to cut back on long duration stocks. So long duration stocks, just to, to remind the audience, would typically be anything trading at higher multiples because it's pricing in a lot of future growth. So in our minds, future growth is becoming increasingly uncertain. And where you find investments where they've priced in that growth to come through with a high level of certainty, we think there's a mispricing opportunity there. We think there's a risk there in terms of that growth might not materialize as quickly as what the market might might suggest. So so that's one thing that, that we've done, really try and avoid those stocks that are essentially priced for perfection. I think the temptation, obviously, in an environment like this is sometimes to be more conservative. But given where inflation risk is at the moment and looking where bond yields are, especially in the developed markets, they are in deep negative territory. So that isn't really something that's appealing to us, especially in the wealth management space, where by definition, what we're trying to achieve is to generate a real return, right? So after inflation, we grow in capital over time. So that's something that's a, a problem. Funny enough, I think South Africa is probably one of the places that's best positioned through this transition because we've got many energy and material companies that are doing well. I mean, our platinum counters are some of, some of the best available. We're a big platinum producer. And then obviously on the fixed income side, our real bond yields in South Africa is well ahead of developed markets. I mean, it's no comparison, but even relative to other emerging market peers, Typically, even where the absolute yields are higher, like places in Brazil and Turkey, for example, the inflation rates are currently much higher than ours, which means that real bond yield net of inflation in South Africa is actually very good. So our bonds are well poised and we've got the right type of counters that will benefit from global demand. I mean, we're not the only people that's figured out that energy and material companies will probably do well through a high inflationary environment. And those uh, offshore investors who've but similar trains of thought are also investing in areas in our market to try and uh, get that benefit into their portfolios for the clients. I like the fact that uh, you're bringing up what's going on in the world of emerging markets because I think when people are thinking about investments in South Africa, you have to think about it from that point of view in terms of how to allocate your funds, etc. And when it comes to sentiment, at least, emerging markets tend to be lumped together, unfortunately. And what's going on around the world right now lends itself to that. But in a previous interview, you told us that uh, investors should be wary of investing too much 
much in a developed market, specifically the U.S. markets at this stage. Is this still your view, given that government has recently increased the offshore thresholds that investors are allowed to own? Yeah, so in terms of the offshore allowance and U.S. investing, although they are related issues, they can be and should be decoupled. So the increase in the offshore allowance is, is a positive development. There's absolutely no, no doubt about that. Uh, the additional flexibility is welcomed by all asset managers, whether they are currently using the opportunity or not. I think investments are cyclical in nature. And even if your view is that it's not the most ideal time to take more money offshore, at some point in, in future that will change and then that additional allowance will come to your benefit. So I think in general, a very positive development in, in that space. That said, we remain cautious on US markets. Luckily, the global investment landscape stretches obviously beyond the US borders. So there's other areas that can be considered. And even in the US, there are still exceptions. So. Obviously, when we say we think U.S. markets are at risk, there's a high degree of generalization, right? So on average, yes, it does seem like there's risks there. If you look at the valuations, research is going to tell you that you need to be extremely selective. The opportunity set is most likely narrowed significantly in that space, and it's going to be harder for you to find opportunities there. And you should probably have muted expectations from that environment. So to answer your question more directly, I think, yes, we, we, we maintain the same view on U.S. markets. Um, investors shouldn't expect the same returns over the next 10 years as what they received in the previous 10. But that being said, we still feel that the offshore allowance is good because it opens up other opportunities globally for investors. It's quite an interesting one, and it's going to be one that people will likely be watching over time because that's always been a big issue. If you have money, do you throw it in the domestic market or do you go offshore and take advantage of some of the opportunities that aren't readily available? And in the current conflict, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking about where in the world they could possibly be putting that money. And I think that helps us get to a stage where we can actually sit and ask ourselves, what can investors learn from a crisis like this? Because I've often spoken to a number of fund managers that say you should never put a good crisis to waste. So what can investors learn from something like this? And at the same time, one of the things that is coming up is to say the Ukraine and Russia thing has been bubbling under for a number of years now. Right. And people see simmering tensions between China and Taiwan and they actually wonder, you know, does this event here mean that something could be seen precipitating on the other side in Asia? So just your thoughts on those two things. Yeah, I think the recent war period has again reminded us that sometimes the unthinkable becomes the reality. I think, I don't know about you, but so often I speak to people that all make that the same comment to say, we thought in this day and age, we'd see war to the extent that we have. And we've actually been through a very peaceful period if you compare the last few decades relative to history, right? So these unthinkable situations do materialize. But then again, that's what diversification is all about. It's about protecting you against those unthinkable events. So investors often often ask how we have reacted to an event. What have we done to our portfolio since that, since something has happened, what, whatever the event may be. But in reality, is the majority of the work actually happens before the event. Successful investment is more about anticipation and preparation than what it is about the reaction and response. 
often when you get your reaction response, it's too late. So you've got to make sure that your portfolios are robust, that you've thought about these scenarios potentially panning out. So I think a, a valuable lesson there. And then talking about China-Taiwan tension specifically, as you mentioned, right? So it's been around for a while. It's definitely something that investors need to stay very, very close to. The impact of a Chinese-Taiwan type scenario and the potential for knock-on sanctions in that environment has far more severe consequences than what we have seen more recently out of Russia, Ukraine. China is a massive integrated player in global trade. So obviously, they, uh, we're looking at a, at a much, much different situation. Our base case is not for tensions to escalate and, and that they're imminent. But we do think about that scenario and we do stress test our portfolio and we incorporate it into our investment planning and have actually gone so far as putting an action plan in place should that event occur. So looking at firms that have significant exposure in that environment and again, who are likely to be the biggest beneficiaries should the event like that materialize. So again, just counterbalancing risk versus opportunity. In, in that thought process. And I think sometimes, you know, when you're thinking about a crisis that is so far away, you somehow feel like we're insulated as South Africa. But when it comes specifically to China, I think the local markets have felt the sneeze of what's going on in that part of the world, just looking at the technology crackdown, all of that stuff, and how it's affected our markets because of NASPERS and process, etc. So all of these things, it's intertwined, I guess, these are the symptoms of being part of a globalized community. So with everything that we've spoken about, Adrian, um, around the Russia-Ukraine crisis and coupling that with all the inflation risks, economic outlooks, interest rates, everything that we've had for today. In one sentence, your advice are for investors out there. That's a tricky one, but I think fair <laughs> enough to say that uh, we're dealing with complex matters. And I would suggest that requires trained professionals to help navigate. Right? This is not the type of environment where a client should be flying solo. Rather, use the help of, of credible asset managers and wealth managers like PSG's been through this before. The situation is very fluid. So in a sentence, maybe use all the help you can get through this period. It's not a time to fly solo. Use all the help you can get. It's not a time to fly solo. Those are the words of Adrian Pask, who is the Chief Investment Officer over at PSG Worth, giving us some insight into the Russia-Ukraine conflict and its impact on uh, investments around the world. He is just highlighting the fact that everything that's happened, you know, particularly around energy prices, has exacerbated what's going on in terms of uh, the inflation risks. And we've actually now seen a lot of central banks around the world, not only in South Africa, coming in to try and help consumers in one way or another, but at the same time, just highlighting the fact that because it is a crisis, there will be winners and losers along the way. And if you want to be one of the people that um, comes out as a winner in some way, at least go out and seek the help of some professionals. This is not the time, as he said, to be flying solo because
because there are so many different factors to be thinking about, so many different dynamics. And at the same time, a lot of moving parts. It's I think this is literally the definition of a fluid situation. We often use that term, but <laughs> uh, Adrian is laughing right now. But uh, this definitely does seem like a situation that is going to be evolving over time. So that's been it in terms of this. It has been a podcast on uh, investment lessons from uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict sponsored by PSG Wealth. I've been your host, Murio Gavaza, business writer with the Business Day and Financial Mail. And remember that you can subscribe for free episodes on iono.fm, Spotify, player.fm, podcasts, pocket casts, or wherever you choose to get your podcasts. Podcasts.